This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Chinese fast fashion giant Xi'an under scrutiny. That's over concerns of forced labor in its supply chain. The company taking several steps to offset those allegations, including launching a lobby campaign in Washington, D.C. It's also talking up its new status as a Singapore-based company. That's after relocating its headquarters there from Nanjing, China. But critics aren't convinced, saying Xi'an needs to do more to clear its name in the coming months. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Chinese-founded online fashion retailer Xi'an is attempting to shake scrutiny over its supply chains by launching a lobby campaign in Washington, D.C. That's as lawmakers investigated over forced labor allegations. Xi'an's popularity soared in recent years, creating a cult following for its cheap and trendy clothes. The company reaches most of its customers through TikTok by snagging them with low prices, most selling for under $15. Those deals grew the business to a $100 billion value in 2022, although that number dropped to $64 billion this year. Those profits turning it into a formidable rival to Zara and H&M. The company churning out over 6,000 new designs on an average day. That fast turnover leading to some legal costs, as brands sue it for ripping off their styles and logos. Xi'an denies any wrongdoing. But those bargains have sparked bigger concerns over ties to forced labor by Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region. If so, that would subject the company to a trade blockade. Xi'an is taking efforts to allay those allegations. It's partnering with an Indian company to help diversify supply chains. Reports noting they'll allow Xi'an to source materials in India. That's despite the app getting booted out of the country in 2020, when India banned over 170 Chinese apps. The firm now hiring Washington lobbyists for the first time. It's also talking up a new status as a Singapore-based company. That's after relocating its headquarters there from Nanjing, China. Its executives are also offering up previously unreported evidence that they say clears the firm of human rights violations related to its cotton supply. Xi'an's head of strategy and corporate affairs saying we are committed to respecting human rights and adhering to local laws in each market we operate in. According to Xi'an, over 2,000 separate tests done on its fabrics came back showing nearly 98% of its cotton didn't come from Xinjiang. Cotton makes up only 4% of its clothing. Xi'an says the rest of its fabrics, like polyester, aren't from Xinjiang. But critics aren't convinced, saying Xi'an needs to do more to clear its name in the coming months. A wake-up call for Western democracies. A new report warning countries, including the U.S., that the West is losing the global technology competition to China. From defense to artificial intelligence, Beijing is allegedly leading in critical technologies that are key to winning the future. The report adds that if Western powers don't catch up and close the gap, they risk handing global power and influence to the Chinese Communist Party. 
The report comes from ASPI, a think tank in Australia. It's been tracking research from over 40 critical technologies, from artificial intelligence to biotech, defense and space. The results showing China leading in over 80 percent of the areas, with the U.S. coming in second. America leads in only seven technologies surveyed. Right now, China dominates hypersonics, electronic warfare and autonomous underwater vehicles. The U.S. still leads in semiconductor devices, quantum computing and vaccines. Last year, news of Beijing reportedly testing a hypersonic missile shook the West. It raised concerns that Beijing could use it to launch a nuclear strike against the U.S., which would prove difficult for America's defense system to track. The report noted China is home to the world's top 10 leading research institutions for certain critical technologies. Beijing has also been taking advantage of the education available in the West. A big number of its leading researchers got their postgraduate training in countries like the U.S., U.K., Canada and Australia. A report from the Wall Street Journal echoes those findings and said in 2021, over 1,400 Chinese scientists returned home after being trained in the U.S. The authors of the report urging countries to boost tech investment and partner with allies to close the gap. Two dangerous encounters between U.S. and Chinese forces and rising risks of armed conflicts by Beijing's military. Following the recent close calls, one at sea and one in the air, White House spokesperson John Kirby on Monday called both unacceptable. Here's what he said. Both of those incidents were in, com in co uh, complete compliance with international law. There was absolutely no need for the PLA to act as aggressively as they did. It, it won't be long before somebody gets hurt. Uh, that's, the, that's the concern with these unsafe and unprofessional intercepts. Uh, they can lead to misunderstandings. They can lead to miscalculations. That warning followed this video released by the U.S. Navy on Sunday. It shows a Chinese vessel crossing in front of a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Strait, forcing it to slow down in order to avoid a collision. About a week ago, a Chinese jet flew directly in front of an American surveillance plane over the South China Sea. Kirby said if China wanted to show that the U.S. was not welcome in the area or to stop American vessels supporting freedom of navigation, it would not succeed. I sure would like to hear uh, Beijing justify what they're doing. That said, uh, these are intercepts. Now look, air and maritime intercepts happen all the time. Heck, we do it. The difference is uh, when we do it, when we feel like we need to do it, it's done professionally and it's done inside the, the, the inter international uh, law and it's done in accordance with the rules of the road. The U.S. Indo-Pacific Command says both the American warship and the surveillance plane were in the area in accordance with international law and that they operate there to show the U.S. commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. Contrary to international law, China requires permission from foreign warships to transit the strait. Another step forward in Washington's efforts to talk to Beijing. Senior U.S. diplomats meeting their Chinese counterparts on Monday. The U.S. State Department releasing a statement saying the two sides talked about bilateral relations, Taiwan issues and channels of communication. One of the diplomats sent to China is Daniel Crittenbrink, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. The other is Sarah Barron, National Security Council Senior Director for China and Taiwan Affairs. The meeting comes amid rising tensions between the two superpowers. 
Right before the U.S. diplomats landed in China, a Chinese warship cut in front of the U.S. missile destroyer near Taiwan, coming in as close as 150 yards. And days earlier, a Chinese jet cut in front of the nose of a U.S. jet, the American aircraft shaking from turbulence. Back on the ground, Beijing recently has been clamping down on Western businesses, raiding the China-based offices of two American firms, Capvision and Mints. Washington has been trying to open the lines of communication with Beijing. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was set to visit China in February, but the trip was pushed back when a Chinese spy balloon was found traversing the continental U.S. Fiji, an island nation in the South Pacific, is looking to scrap a policing pact with China. The agreement was signed back in 2011. It allows Fijian police forces to be trained in China and for Chinese law enforcement to be deployed to Fiji. Here's the latest. The deal was struck under the nation's previous leadership, but things took a turn when the new prime minister took office. Shortly after the election, Fiji has been considering ending the agreement with China. The nation's prime minister says there's no need to keep up the deal. On Sunday, the Fijian immigration minister said the pact is under scrutiny, and he issued a six-month notice to China, stating that termination is one outcome that could be possible. During the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore this weekend, the minister met with his Australian counterpart to discuss defense arrangement. Worth noting, the two nations also signed an agreement back in October, aiming to bolster security cooperation. Fiji's former leadership assumed office after a coup, and its tie with traditional partners soon began to soar. The nation also initiated the so-called Look North policy, which consolidated ties with China. The Chinese regime's presence in the South Pacific has been drawing concerns from the West. Over the last few weeks, representatives from the U.S., India and South Korea have been reaching out to Pacific leaders as its geopolitical importance grows. Over in Europe, the British government will take no further action over the reported Chinese police service stations across the U.K. The security minister on Tuesday said China had closed the locations and investigations of the sites did not reveal any illegal activity. The UK previously said reports of undeclared stations in the country were extremely concerning. Sam Wang, NTD News. A secret spy meeting held among two dozens of the world's major intelligence agencies. Sources say the meetings have been held for years, though never previously reported. They explain that senior officials gathered on the sidelines of the Sangrila Dialogue Security Meeting in Singapore this weekend. Those sources declined to be identified because of the sensitivity of the matter. Representing the U.S., Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines. From India, the head of the country's Overseas Intelligence Gathering Agency of the Research and Analysis Wing. Russia did not attend the meeting. Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister joined the Sangrila Dialogue, but not the intelligence meeting. Despite the tensions with the U.S., Beijing was reportedly present. Few specifics were given about the discussion, but Russia's war in Ukraine and transnational crime were allegedly involved. One source explained why the meeting is helpful, saying there is an unspoken code among intelligence services that they can talk when more formal and open diplomacy is harder. It is a very important factor during times of tension. The event also allows participants to meet their counterparts. The atmosphere is said to be collaborative, not combative. Large intelligence meetings like this are extremely rare and almost never publicized. Tensions are escalating between the world's two most populous nations and a string of tit-for-tat actions, India and China have kicked out almost all of each other's journalists. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, New Delhi last month refused to extend the visas of two Chinese state media reporters. They were the last of the official Chinese media that remained in India. Beijing has threatened to take what it calls appropriate countermeasures. Indian journalists fared no better in China. In April, Beijing denied two Indian reporters re-entry into China. A third one was already on Chinese soil but had his credentials revoked. The media ejection builds on a decades-old dispute. It focuses on the two countries' shared border, known as the Line of Actual Control, or LAC. The conflict turned deadly after a 2020 military standoff killed 20 Indian soldiers and an unknown number of Chinese troops. In an alarming development, satellite photos from last month show China expanding three airfields along the LAC. The footage was taken by Planet Labs, a San Francisco-based earth imaging company. New runways, fortified bunkers and military facility buildings are visible around the airfields, a noteworthy expansion from their scale in 2020. Together, these three airports span northern India. Analysts see the ongoing construction as efforts by Beijing to widen the range of its Air Force operations and a bid to bolster its offensive capabilities. When you think of space, you may think of NASA or maybe the military. But now the U.S. State Department is getting involved. The department released a statement recently. It outlines a strategy for space diplomacy, calling for building international partnerships and a rules-based international order for outer space. The document comes as China makes big strides in space. Over the weekend, three Chinese astronauts returned to Earth after a six-month stay in space. The capsule carrying the astronauts landed in Inner Mongolia, marking the end of the Shenzhou 15 mission. The trio returned home after their replacement crew arrived at the Dikengong space station recently. China built its own space station after it was excluded from the International Space Station. That's over U.S. concerns about the Chinese space program's military links. But China's ambitions in space don't stop there. Last Monday, Beijing announced plans to put people on the moon by 2030. Coming up, tensions rising in space. Leaked CIA documents showing key U.S. and allied space assets are at risk. At the same time, China has developed a significant ability, hijacking enemy satellites and would deploy that tech in a war. What role does space play on the modern battleground? And what nation will claim the upper hand in the final frontier? We hear from geopolitical analyst and author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, Brandon Weichert. It's going to be uh, probably the most boring war. It's going to be a silent war, but it's going to be one that affects us all. And it's, it's going to be real catastrophic. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A warning about threats from space. Leaked CIA documents revealing Beijing is building cyber weapons to hijack enemy satellites, a vital upper hand in potential wars. How big of a concern is this? And what's the possibility of a real-life Star Wars in the future? Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, breaks it down. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. 
And Brandon, there's been a lot of talk about these leaked Pentagon documents and intelligence, and it seems some of it shows that China was creating these weapons that could hijack our satellites. How big of a concern is this? It's a major concern. Going back to 2013, uh, the Air Force has been aware uh, of the vulnerabilities to the onboard operating systems of their satellites. Um, real quickly, the reason this is a vulnerability is because military satellites uh, are bigger and more complex than their civilian counterparts. So when we launch them, it's very expensive. Uh, and once they got into orbit, um, the military did not have the ability, because of funding issues, to easily and readily replace them. So that meant that the onboard operating systems tended to be antiquated. And so the older the operating system, the easier for hackers on the ground to penetrate whatever defenses were there, uh, because those hackers are using more sophisticated means than what the onboard operating system has. In Guam, a lot of U.S. critical infrastructure was Absolutely. hit by Chinese state-backed hackers, Microsoft mm -hmm. issuing this alert out. Mm -hmm. And a lot are noticing, noting that Guam would be very important in terms of a Taiwan invasion. If Beijing were to go after Taiwan, Guam is central to that. So how do we shore up our critical infrastructure if there's these pieces of malware that could just infect it? Don't make things so centralized in our critical infrastructure. Make them redundant. Spread them out. Um, physically, uh, I remember when I worked on the Hill, there was a congressman, Hank Johnson, a Democrat from Georgia, famously, foolishly said, we put all these things on, on Guam and it's going to tip the island over. Of course, it was crazy. But actually, when you think about it in terms of the geography, you put all of these capabilities on one or two locations in the Indo-Pacific, it's very easy for the enemy to target it and knock it out, and then you've just lost your forward deployed assets. The issue for us is we talk about this. Um, the government's not really doing it. And Brandon, as you said, there's been a lot of talk in the U.S., but not many actions. And you have a book called Winning Space. So mm -hmm. what are the steps the U.S. needs to do to make sure we do win space? In the book, I outline explicitly space dominance is the buzzword. That was what Trump said in 2019. It's not just for doing communications and surveillance. It's for preventing attacks on the homeland, also for possibly threatening offensive attacks from space to the ground below. We really need to get there because what now, what's going on now is China and Russia, really, those two countries, are using uh, dual-use technologies to not just militarize space, but to weaponize space, to threaten our existing satellite constellations, our space station, uh, to threaten those resources in orbit as a means of denying us access to that critical domain uh, in the event of a conflict with either of those countries. And if we lose access to space in a time of war, we're going to lose the war on the land, at sea, in the air, and across the cyberspace domain. So we've got to dominate space, not just use space, dominate it. And Brandon, it sounds like this space dominance is how we ensure deterrence. Is that fair? Absolutely. We live in the age of asymmetrical warfare, where there's an inherent imbalance between the United States and its rivals. Usually, it's an imbalance in America's favor. But today, the imbalance is actually hurting America because um, we use space more, we rely on it more than the Chinese and Russians do, at least for now. Um, which gives them a lot of advantage because for a few million dollars, 
they can basically take out America's trillion-dollar military with an anti-satellite weapon, an anti-counterspace attack on our satellites. Uh, they can take out our economy by knocking out those uh, satellites that manage communications, but also that manage the carefully timed international electronic trans transfers of wealth and transactions that can knock out at least a trillion dollars of GDP overnight. How likely are we to see like potentially Star Wars happening in the future? Um, well, this is this is actually a real concern. And when we say Star Wars, you know, that's that people get an idea in their head. It's not going to be, you know, the Star Destroyers blasting the other ships. Space warfare is not going to look like that. Um, it's it's going to be silent, but deadly. Um, it's going to be automated. Obviously, there's nobody up there. We're not going to see it. It's not going to be televised. And it's it's we're not going to even know it until about half an hour to 45 minutes after it takes place, because at that point was is when we'll start losing capabilities. Uh, and so it's it's going to be uh, probably the most boring war. It's going to be a silent war, but it's going to be one that affects us all. And it's it's going to be real catastrophic. So it could also end up taking out satellites around the world for everybody. And then that's throwing the whole planet back to 1970s type uh, level of you know technological existence. It seems maybe there's developments in the commercial sector. You, we have Elon Musk and his Starlinks. How much cooperation might we see there going forward? A lot, and it's already started, and that's why I say they started to change things. Starlink, I think, is ultimately the model that they should be going toward in the military satellite realm. I think that's where Space Force wants to get to. Um, it might not be exactly, because ultimately, basically the model is right now we have one or two or three satellites very big that are doing multiple mission sets, which makes them very expensive and hard to replace. So why don't we break apart those satellites into smaller, cheaper, less complex systems that are more easily replaceable? Um, and then you put a lot of those smaller systems into a larger constellation, and that makes them capable, as capable as the current type of satellite that with the military uses. The problem is, is that it's going to take a while to get to there, and ultimately, we don't yet know how um, uh, capable those satellites would be, even if they're in a larger constellation. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.